1: A non negotiable decision. A non negotiable decision. Thomas A. Kempis, many hundreds of years ago, wrote this in one of his dialogues with God. My son, this of course is God speaking. If thou wholly resign thyself into my hands and take nothing to thee again, thou shalt have the more grace of me. O Lord, how oft shall I resign me to thee? And in what things shall I forsake myself? Always and in every hour, in great things and in small I accept nothing, for in all things I would find thee naked and poor, and void of thine own will. How mayst thou be mine, and I thine, unless thou be clearly bereft of thy own will, within and without? And the sooner that thou canst bring it about, so much the sooner shall it be better with thee. Resign thyself wholly to me, and thou shalt have great peace. That's in harmony with what the Bible says. Great peace have they who love thy law. And the sooner we are obedient, the greater the peace, and the more quickly it will come. A few years ago, when my little grandson, Jim, was about two, his parents were going out one of the very rare occasions when they both went out in the evening and they left him, this time, with me, Granny. And Jim was not at all happy when he learned that he was at the mercy of Granny for the evening. And so the minute the door closed, he he threw a tantrum, just flung himself on the floor of the hall and screamed and yelled and kicked. And I went to him and I said, Jim, would you like Granny to read you a story? And he screamed and he kicked. And I said, Jim, would you like a glass of juice? And he screamed and he howled. And I picked him up in my arms, which was very difficult, you know, when a child is furious and (laughs) kicking and stiff. And I tried to hug him and tried to love him and said, Jim, we're going to have a story and we'll have a glass of juice and Granny will rock you and... Nothing worked. Well, finally, I thought to pray. I don't know why I didn't think sooner. How often we try everything, and finally, in our utter helplessness and desperation, we pray. As the old hymn says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because what? We do not carry everything to God in prayer. I can tell that there are a few people here as old as I am, so you still sing hymns. But very few of you. And I, one of the things that I really feel very sad about in the modern church is the, the use of um, just gospel songs and the scripture songs, which are lovely, as many of them are. Some of them are extremely thin theologically. But the neglect of the great hymn to the church. Now, the one I was just quoting is not, you wouldn't call it a great hymn. It's a simple gospel song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But that line says a mouthful, doesn't it? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So I finally thought to pray, Lord, show me what to do with this child. I didn't want to spank him. I do believe in spanking, but... A granny does not want to spank if any way she could possibly help it. A mother doesn't want to spank either, usually. But uh, sometimes it's necessary. So I said, Lord, show me what to do. And suddenly the thought came to my mind, take him outside. And it was a beautiful, balmy, Mississippi night. I carried him outside in my arms, and instantly he was quiet. I didn't say a word, and all we could hear was crickets. And we stood there in the starlight. And he said, Granny, those are crickets. Do you hear the crickets, Granny? And I said, yes. And there was a long silence, and he said, maybe we'll see some stars. And we saw some stars. And I thought, what a spiritual illustration that is, because Jim was forfeiting his peace because he would not accept the only answer there was, which was surrender to his grandmother. <laughs> but God assisted me in bringing about that surrender, first by bringing it into my mind to carry him outside, and then by just giving us the beautiful fragrance of the jasmine and the, the balmy warmth of that summer evening and the sound of the crickets and the stars. And God has all kinds of ways of bringing peace into our souls, doesn't he? A non-negotiable decision is surrender to Jesus Christ. And this is what Joseph did, and it's what Mary did. They surrendered to the Lord. Joseph surrendered his fears, his moral hesitations, and he did what the angel of the Lord told him to do, and he did it at once. And any job that you hate, any confrontation that you dread, anything at all that you find hard or fearful, fearsome, does not get any easier if you put it off, does it? It destroys your sleep, it destroys your peace, it destroys your moods, it destroys your family and anybody else that has to get along with you. You are completely unget along withable because you will not do the thing, walk straight up to it, and do it now. Now, I have no idea what you need to do when you get home today. I mean, I have a pretty good idea that you young mothers have got to swing into action and do a whole lot of things that you didn't get, that you couldn't have done during the day that you would normally do on Saturdays. And you've got children waiting for you, and husbands hungry, and all sorts of things. So those are the will of God. You know, you do those things for God's sake. You cook the supper, and take care of the children, and be nice to your husband, and all the rest of it. But there may be something that God is speaking to you about today, because I do not know you. I'm not making personal remarks here, except that they are very personal to all of us. Is it something that you dread? Something that you fear? Something that you hate? Well, I would hope that you will not go out of here without without having made a non-negotiable decision. Lord, I will do it. And I will do it at once. It was when I was probably a very small child that I surrendered to Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have no recollection of that. Last night we had dinner with some people that were telling us how they became Christians, and it was a very dramatic story. One of them, the, the man who had taken us to dinner, was into drugs, and he was in jail and in the Marines and arrested. And had a very, very checkered past and he said, if only I could just erase all of that from my memory. He said, you people that have a Christian background, he said, you have no idea what you how much you should be thankful for that. He said, if you think that it's fun, doing all those things that we thought were fun, you know, he said, that's why we did it. We thought it was fun, but he said it wasn't and it was horrible. And my memories I can't erase. So I'm very, very grateful for the fact that I don't have a dramatic story to tell about how awful I was before. I, you know, I just don't have that kind. I didn't hate my parents. I was not abused by my father. I was never a streetwalker. I've never been in jail. I've never been on drugs. Those were not the temptations of my life. But I suppose that when I was maybe four or five, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I can't remember a time when I was not a Christian, but I do remember making a public profession of faith when I was ten when I heard a sermon on ye must be born again. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I've not really been born again. I better make sure. And so I did so publicly. But it was when I was 12 that I began to comprehend really quite deeply that I must surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you parents of young children, Never underestimate the spiritual perception of a child. They are almost always way ahead of us. And when I was 10, I vividly remember saying to myself, these grown-ups don't know what's going through my head, but God knows, and I am responsible to God. I can remember actually consciously saying that to myself. I knew I was responsible to God. And I know my parents certainly didn't make light of the decision that I made when I was 10 years old. One of the great graces of being brought up in the kind of Christian home where I was reared in Philadelphia was that we had many, many guests. My parents took seriously the scriptural command to be hospitable. And I like Philip's translation that says, Be hospitable without wishing you hadn't got to be. And when I think of, you know, I look at my daughter; she just amazes me. And let nobody think that I'm holding her up as an unattainable example. But she is a tranquil woman. And last Sunday, um, she has six children, and her husband's a pastor. Now, have you ever heard of a pastor's family with six children inviting people for Sunday lunch? Sunday lunch. I mean, I, I just never have. But. They do it all the time, not every Sunday, but very often. And last Sunday I said, how many people are you expecting for lunch? Because I was helping her with a, the with a meal, you know, and she said, well, I'm expecti- expecting 14, counting the nine of us who were already here. And as we were driving home from church, she said, well, we have to make it 18 because four more people are coming that I didn't know about. My parents were, well, not quite that flexible, but they did have guests all the time. And among the people that came to our home was a young woman by the name of Betty Scott Stamm. And Betty Scott betty Scott was her name then. She was on her way to China to marry her fiancé, John Stamm. I was about four or five. I don't remember much about her visit, but I do remember when I was eight, my father came home one day with a newspaper telling about... John and Betty Stamps having been captured by Chinese Communists and decapitated. And Betty was forced to watch while they chopped her husband's head off. And then they killed her. And her little baby was found quite safe and alive in their home later by a Christian Chinese woman who rescued her. Well, you can imagine the impact that that story had on a 12-year-old girl, an 8-year-old girl, because I remembered this lady sitting at our dinner table. And it was at 12 that I came across Betty Scott Stam's non-negotiable prayer of decision. She wrote this, and I copied it into my Bible. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes all my own desires and hopes and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost now and forever think about those three words at any cost they impressed me very deeply knowing that Betty who could not have known when she wrote the prayer that she was to be decapitated but that was her commitment and when you get married you come down the aisle just radiant beaming from ear to ear just thrilled to death with the life that's before you because there is a beloved face down there in the front looking extremely handsome to whom you are going to commit your life and you stand before God and witnesses and you pronounce absolutely staggering oaths Will you have this man to be your wedded husband? I will. In sickness and in health? For richer, for poorer, for better, or for worse? Yes. Till death us do part, I will. Now, do you have any idea what you're getting into? No. Why do you make promises like that? It's because of love, isn't it? I mean, you love this man and you figure that you will be able to fulfill them because you love him. But human love never meets the standard, the test. And any sensible woman is going to realize very quickly, maybe within 24 hours or so, that this prize package that she got is a surprise package. And she is going to need a lot of help and any sensible man is going to need the same thing. And if you're looking for the best book that's ever been written on marriage outside of the Bible, I would recommend to you Mike Mason's The Mystery of Marriage. It is a blockbuster. It, we don't need any other books on the subject of marriage. If you read Mike Mason, The Mystery of Marriage and he gets into this whole thing of how when he was on his honeymoon they visited a Trappist monastery and as he was praying alone in the little chapel of the monastery he was suddenly overwhelmed with the feeling that God must have called him to be a monk (laughs) and he's on his honeymoon and he takes off from there what does a man do? do you know... What is going to be involved when you say, Lord, I want your will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else? Did Betty Sam know what was going to be involved? Did the disciples, when they left their nets and their peaceful fisherman's life, it was a hard life, but it was a very quiet, peaceful life, (laughs) did they have any idea what they were in for when Jesus said, follow me, and they left their nets and followed him. Of course not. Nor do we. But we don't have to know the program. We only have to know the master. The sheepdog doesn't understand the pattern. I've had the most wonderful experiences of watching real sheepdogs in operation. Some of you have seen that. It is a thrilling experience. We saw it in Australia, New Zealand, and I've seen it in Wales. And we have a friend who lived in New Hampshire that also had sheepdogs and sheep. And in Wales, when the first time that I saw this marvelous operation of the shepherd himself, who was on horseback, and the sheepdog, and these hundreds of sheep, and the sheepdog racing around to the left and then stopping on a dime and then listening the tiny little whistle that the shepherd had that I couldn't hear with my human ear but the dog could hear racing around the, fr- the, the right side stopping on a dime listening again and I stood there with the shepherd's wife watching all this on the hillside and I said to her does this dog know what the shepherd is up to and she said the dog doesn't understand the pattern only obedience you have to go out You don't have to come back. I don't have to know what is involved when I say, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. Yes, but I have a long list of plans and purposes. Give it all to the Lord. And it is wonderful to see how God not only fulfills many of the things that were our deepest desires in ways beyond anything we could have imagined. We could have never engineered them in the way that God is going to engineer them. And the way God says no to a lot of things on our list in order to say yes to a lot of things we never thought of. See, I can look back over my life and realize that many of God's greatest mercies were his refusals. When I was pregnant, I wanted a boy first. I thought it's wonderful to have an older brother. I have an older brother and three younger ones and a younger sister. But I thought every family needs to have a big brother first. And so Jim and I prayed that God give us a son. And we got a daughter. And I was a little disappointed. And I thought Jim would be very disappointed, and he wasn't. I remember this in the first hour or so when he held that little thing in his arms, and he was just ecstatic. He said, look at this, She's a little dolly. (laughs) Well, how did we know that Jim would be dead by the time she was 10 months old? We had no way of knowing that, and how much better and easier it has been for me to, to rear one daughter than it would have been to... Rear one son. But God knew that what I really wanted, that the bottom line, the non-negotiable decision is, Lord, I want your will, and I'm going to do your will at any cost, now and forever. And we don't know what we're getting into any more than the bride and the groom. The reason the bride does it and the groom does it is because they love this person, but they ought to realize that they're loving a very fallible person. And that when you get married, you marry a man. You don't marry your mother or your brother or your best friend or your grandfather. You marry a man who is full of surprises. You also marry a sinner because there isn't anything else to marry. (laughs) And have you ever thought about the fact that your poor husband married a sinner too? You know, you want him to be perfect, but what's he stuck with? (laughs) a long set of, a long list of peculiarities and unexplainable things. But God is totally trustworthy. If he can engineer the universe, can you imagine that he could not manage your life maybe a little bit better than you can? And yet, aren't we foolish aren't we isn't it just incomprehensible? How stupid we can be when we say, "But Lord, I've got to hang on to this." He says, "Give it to me, let me take care of it for you. I can handle it better than you can. Do any of you know that beautiful poem "The Hound of Heaven" by Francis Thompson um hope that some of you will rush to the library and look it up, but it's a beautiful poem about a man who tries to escape from God, and he is hounded by the hound of heaven until God corners him, and he feels as though the only reason God is after him is to take everything away from him that he desires in life, and toward the end of the poem it says this, God seeks the hound of heaven, speaks to the man. He said, all that I took from thee, I took not for thy harms, but that thou mightst find it in my arms. When I picked little Jim up in the hall and held him in my arms, it wasn't to destroy his peace, but that he might find his peace in allowing me to love Him. On Monday, I was sitting in my hotel room, working on the book, praying, reading my Bible, thinking about things that I thought God was wanting me to say in the next book that I'm working on, and I didn't really feel any peace, and I felt very apprehensive and very fearful I was thinking of all sorts of horrible possibilities for my daughter and her family and the church and a whole lot of other things. And I knew what I had to do. I had to give it all to the Lord and I gave it all to the Lord and that doesn't necessarily change your feelings. You know, our emotions are extremely undependable and really don't have anything at all to do with the reality of God or the truth of the promises of God. Try to remember that. Your emotions do not have anything to do with the promises of God. But anyway, I I wrote some of this stuff down in my journal just because in my journal it's wonderful to go back and read these journals I've kept for more than 50 years and see the ways in which God meets me specifically at times of my own fears or doubts or whatever. And Tuesday morning... My daughter, who was expecting number seven, called me to say that she was bleeding. And she went to the hospital and she lost that baby on Thursday. Which was a great heartbreak to her. And I'm sure it's yeah. the kind of thing that nobody really understands who isn't the mother. And a lot of mothers wouldn't understand if you already had six children. But this was a child that she deeply desired. And her first remark to me was, I've been greatly comforted. When I saw her, of course, I went over and took care of the children. She had to go to the hospital. And she said, I have great peace. And then last night I was talking to Walt, and he said that she had turned to him when they, when the baby was finally born. And you know, very long, extremely painful process of inducing labor and all that sort of thing, He said, she just turned to me with her peaceful smile, and she said, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Now, that's not, that's not because she's a wonderful woman. It's because she's made a non-negotiable decision that her life is God's, and that what God wants to give her, she will take, and what God wants to take away from her, she will release. And that is a decision that never has to be made again. It has to be reaffirmed. Don't misunderstand me. We have, God gives us chances every day to reaffirm our commitment. And every day there are those choices between my will or thine. In my book on the subject of suffering... written this the acceptance of the will of God is always a simple thing though for us who are yet far from sainthood it is often not an easy thing our lives are still complicated our aims mixed our vision clouded does that describe your life? it does mine no wonder Jesus told us to consider the birds and the lilies we spend a lot of time in talk we write books about deep things but we miss seeing God's little chickadee as he flits cheerily in the snow-laden evergreen, finding the seed that God has put for him there. We rarely consider a bird in his precious simplicity, the chickadee wearing his little black cap and gray suit, whistling tinily, doing nothing but what he was made to do. Now, I would like to do nothing but what I was made to do. I'm sure that this is what God intends. But how shall I know what that is, except in quietness? How shall I listen if I'm full of talk? It does take quietness. It was when I was a college student that God began the severe testing process of the validity of the commitment that I had made when I was 12 years old. I don't remember any major test until I was a senior in college. And I had fallen in love, as I mentioned, with this very handsome, attractive man by the name of Jim Elliott. And when I asked Jim for his autograph in my yearbook, he signed his name with a scripture reference, 2 Timothy 2.4. Well, I didn't know what that reference was, so I didn't waste any time, as you girls can imagine, in grabbing my Bible and thumbing through to 2 Timothy 2.4, and I found these words a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. How many of you have relatives in the military? Three people here. Quite a few of you. You know perfectly well that they're not asked for input. Input. Nowadays we all feel as if we have to have input. You know, the kindergarten kids are asked for input. How do you feel about the lunch program or the busing or the sandbox or the teacher? But a military man doesn't have any input. He is under orders. And it is his not to reason why, it is his but to do or die, and sometimes to do and die. And that was exactly the message that Jim Elliot was giving to me. I didn't know very much about Jim Elliot, but I knew all I needed to know to make me realize this is exactly the kind of a man that I hope God will give me someday, but it would be ridiculous for a woman like me to hope for a man like that. So when I read this, I thought, now is he giving me a personal message or did he write this in everybody's yearbook and I never did find out whether he wrote it in everybody's yearbook but what he was telling me was very clear that he had made a non-negotiable decision he was under orders and he was going to do the will of his commanding officer and nobody and nothing was going to deflect him from that now I liked that that I saw in Jim a man of decision and commitment it does simplify your life. He didn't have to start praying and agonizing about this girl, Betty Howard. That was what my name was back in those days. He just said, Lord, she belongs to you. I didn't know what was going through his head, but later on I learned all this. And Just before I graduated, just a couple of weeks before I graduated, he asked me to go for a walk. I was thunderstruck. It was a beautiful May morning. We were walking in beautiful sunlight. We started down the street and within 5 minutes he turned to me and he said, "I think we need to get squared away how we feel about each other." I was just aghast. <laughs> First place because of course there there was the assurance that he had some feelings about me, but I was also irritated to think that this man had the cheek and the brass to imagine that I had some feelings about him. Because I thought I had done a bang-up job of doing exactly what my mother told me when I was about 12 years old. She gave me two principles to go by. She said, do not chase boys and be sure to keep them at arm's length. Well, my mother, who was a very beautiful, very popular girl, managed to get about three or four proposals before my father proposed to her, and that was her rule. And she kept them all at arm's length, and she said, always keep them guessing. And nowadays, you hear exactly the opposite, and again, you know, I'm some kind of a weirdo from another planet. But anyway, God has given me three husbands in obedience, when I went in obedience to those principles. (laughs) And I had never given Jim any reason to think that I had any feelings about him. He was just proud enough to take it for granted that almost any girl would have some feelings about him, I guess. But the second announcement that he made was the most stunning of all, which was that he thought God was asking him to remain single, perhaps for the rest of his life. Because he was going to the mission field, and he knew that pioneer missionary work might require that he remain single, and he was willing to do that. He was again telling me, I'm under orders, it's not my business as to whether God has a single life for me permanently, but if God ever gives me the green light to get married, You're the woman I would like to marry. This is what he said, in effect. And he said, but I'm not asking you to marry me. I am not even asking you to wait for me. And as I said earlier, it never occurred to us to say that we had a relationship. Nowadays, they talk about these really neat relationships. You know, I mean, well, that's just really neat. Anyway, if you want to read the details of the story, it's in the book Passion and Purity that I mentioned, or from Jim's standpoint spelled out in detail in his biography, Shadow of the Almighty. A non-negotiable decision to allow Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life means that he owns you, and he owns every area of your life. He doesn't take anything from you for your harm but only that you may find it in his arms all that I took from thee I took not for thy arms but that thou mightst find it in my arms and another quotation from somebody named Samuel Shaw in 1669 happiness heaven itself is nothing else but a perfect conformity, a cheerful and eternal compliance of all the powers of the soul with the will of God. I'll read it again. Happiness, heaven itself, is nothing else but a perfect conformity, a cheerful and eternal compliance of all the powers of the soul with the will of God. Now isn't that what Mary did exactly? Did Mary argue with the angel and said, hey, wait a minute, I'm engaged. What is Joseph going to say? What about my plans? I don't want to be pregnant now. What are the townspeople going to say? They'll stone me to death. They'll never believe my story. No objections, no hesitations. A non-negotiable decision had been made long before the angel's visit. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. That's what I am. Let it happen as you say. I get a lot of funny questions asked. Thank you, Lars. He's giving me time signals back there. People ask me all sorts of strange questions, and interviewers are not usually very original. They ask all the same questions every time. But one interviewer asked me one that sort of stumped me. He said... What does Elizabeth Elliot want to be remembered for? And I just thought, can you imagine anybody asking a question like that? I mean, what would you say if somebody said, what would you like to be remembered for? I don't know what he was looking for, but I said, I just want to be a servant of God. I can't think of a higher ambition, I cannot even imagine anything that would bring greater fulfillment, as the world is always looking for fulfillment. And certainly, his service is perfect freedom, and his service is tranquility. I don't need to search for that, except in every day, surrendering to God all that I am, and all that I have, and all that I do, and all that I suffer. All that I am means present my body, a living sacrifice. God can do anything you want with this body. All that I have, what does it mean? Well, it means my gifts, my possessions, my husband, my children, my grandchildren, my gold bracelet that I lost about three or four weeks ago. The only gold bracelet I've ever had, it's not gold. My second husband had given that to me and it was a very beautiful bracelet. And I don't know what happened to it. I had the slightest idea. And when that happened, God reminded me of the verse in the Psalms that says that his words are more precious than gold, of much fine gold. And it says in 1 Peter 1 that trial of our faith is more precious than of gold which perishes. And so I had to say, well, Lord... It was yours to begin with. I don't have anything to lose because I don't have anything to keep. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. What can you keep in this world to gain what you cannot lose? Just give it all to Jesus. So the anxiety that I had on Monday as to future disasters, present disorders, past failures... As I said, there was no great feeling of calm as I committed them to God in obedience and prayer. My prayers are matters of obedience, not because I happen to feel religious or pious or feel like getting up early in the morning or something. It's just a matter of doing something that needs to be done, you know. Do you write do you wash your dishes when you feel in the mood for washing dishes? Or do you wash dishes because dishes are dirty? How about cleaning the kitchen and doing the laundry and cleaning the bathroom you don't do it because you feel inspired (laughs) and yet people ask me all the time do you write books when you're inspired I say well I don't think I would have ever written a book because as far as I know I've never been inspired for as much as five minutes running five consecutive minutes so there wasn't any great feelings or anything else of God's presence or God's love but it's in the book And my dear friend Catherine Morgan from Bogota, Colombia, who is a great, great model to me, a woman 83 years old, she's still a full-time active missionary in Bogota, which is probably one of the most dangerous cities in the world now, given the drug traffic and murders and kidnappings and all that. In my last conversation with her on the phone, she said she was here in the States visiting her some of her relatives. She has a daughter in Mission Viejo. And she said, Oh, she said, I get so tired of people saying to me, oh, but you've got so much faith. You've got so much faith. She said, I don't have any faith. I can read. (laughs) My Bible says I will never leave you or forsake you. And so I take courage from my friend Catherine Morgan, Mm -hmm. who is a spiritual mother to me, and I say, Lord, I don't have any great feelings of your love or your presence. You're not telling me that none of these fears are going to come to pass. You're just telling me, trust me. I've got the whole world in my hands. I'll take care of it. Now, could I know that the next morning, my daughter was going to begin to lose a baby? What she didn't know then was that the baby had been dead for a month. What is a Christian's response? Christians are not people that are exempt from the troubles and the trials and the sufferings, and that's one of the challenges that non-Christians fling at Christians all the time. Who of us hasn't heard that? Well, this God that you talk about that's so loving, where is he when somebody gets cancer? My dear friend Ruth, Stam Jordan, niece of John Stamm, who was decapitated, called me on Saturday to say that her husband had died of a brain tumor. We're not exempt. What do we say? What is our response? See, I don't know what your trouble is this morning. I don't know what it is that's breaking your heart. But the secret of tranquility is I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. And I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, God never defaults on a promise. He has never broken his word to me. He has answered my prayers in many, to me, strange ways. And he has often said no. And he has often said wait. And the reason he does that is for the same reason that you, if you are a loving mother, say no to your child. Why? Because you hate him? And he may say to you, you never give me anything. You hate me. But you know the truth, don't you? And I know the truth here. Jesus loves me. This I know. Not because everything works out beautifully in my life but because the Bible tells me so. He died for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. And the Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There was a non-negotiable decision and a clear-cut goal. I would ask you this morning, what do you live for? What is your aim? Could you define it? Would you know what to say? Second question, is it worth dying for? It's not worth dying for. It's not worth living for. To the reporters who came to ask us widows why our husbands had gone into that savage territory, we had a hard time explaining because they weren't adventurers. They were doing it in obedience. But to some of them I gave the verse, First John 2.17, The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear But the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. Will you give to the Lord today your setbacks, your failures, your disappointments, your broken dreams, your frustrations, your heartbreak, your fears, Can you handle them? Can you handle them better than he can? Give it all to the Lord. I promise you, in God's time, in God's way, in God's measure, he will grant you the tranquility that you would so desperately
0: seek. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.